Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. Hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and on the show, we talk about how complicated the healthcare space is. And it's kind of like a 30,000-piece puzzle. Each guest that we bring on holds on to a piece of that puzzle and shares it with our listeners and network. And so today we have Dr. Sheikha Jane. I'd love for you to take a moment and introduce yourself and kind of share your piece of the healthcare health IT puzzle. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Joy. I love your podcast. It's such a great way to talk about so many aspects of healthcare, like you said. So as you mentioned, my name is Dr. Shika Jane. I am a medical oncologist at the University of Illinois in Chicago. I'm an associate professor with tenure and my multiple other hats that I wear. I'm also our director of communication strategies for our cancer center. So I do a lot in the public health messaging space. But one of the biggest things that I do, I run two separate nonprofits. One nonprofit is called Women in Medicine, and we are the primary sponsor of the Women in Medicine Summit a conference that I started about five years ago. And that is really focused on closing the gender gap in healthcare and working towards creating more equitable healthcare system. And then the other nonprofit that I run is called Impact. And that one was started during the pandemic. And it's all about effective public health messaging and addressing misinformation and disinformation. So I do a lot of work in the healthcare space outside of being a clinical practitioner in oncology as well. You say yes to a lot. How do you handle that? That's a great question. So early (laughs) in my career, I said yes to almost everything. And now I've become a little bit more specific and selective in what I say yes to. I also have three young children who are eight, five, and five. And so I've had to really think about what's important and what is going to advance my mission, advance my career, advance my happiness, advance healthcare, and then also thinking about if I'm saying yes to one thing, I'm going to have to say no to something else. So I've gotten better at that. I'm not as good as I probably should be. My husband will probably say I still say yes too much, but I'm working on that. (laughs) Do you find the things that you say yes to kind of support the other things that you've already said yes to? Like, do they tend to work well together? I try to say yes to things that do support each other. So one thing I teach all of my trainees is if you're going to say yes to something, figure out how you can multi 
repurpose it. So for example, I might write an op-ed and then I might do a podcast episode on that topic. And then I might write an academic paper on that topic. So finding a way to use the work that I'm doing to in multiple different ways and avenues has been one way that I've been able to accomplish a lot without doubling or tripling the work. Okay. So I have never been to the Women in Medicine Summit yet. I anticipate getting to go this year. Can you share about just the summit in general? What is your vision for it? Who should participate and what topics get covered? Yeah, the Women in Medicine Summit, I mean, objectively, I can say this because people have told me this, it is really an experience. So it's a two-day conference. It's open to people of all genders. And actually the first person who registered this year was a man. So I'm very excited about that. And we have men, women, and people who identify as non-binary. And the purpose of the summit is really to come to a place for two days where you get your own personal and professional development and growth. There is a half day on Friday and a half day on Saturday of lectures and keynotes and really empowering speakers. Then the second half of the day is all about workshops and breakouts. We have posters and oral abstracts that are presented at the summit. So you can submit abstracts to be presented. We have awards that we give out. So there's award nominations open right now. The people who really come are people who are looking for talks on leadership, on negotiation, on creating an inclusive work environment, on allyship. We have talks on gaslighting versus imposter syndrome. How can you tell what you're facing? We have stuff on writing in medicine and media in medicine and getting your voice out there. So it really encompasses anybody who's in the healthcare space. It encompasses anything you could want to figure out if you want to stay in clinical medicine. Do you want to start a side gig? Do you want to start a podcast? Are you trying to figure out how to get into the C-suite? So it really has kind of topics for everybody and anybody who's interested in trying to get the most out of their career. Do people tend to be coming from the clinical side or not, or is it open to everyone? So we get a mix, actually. We have um, quite a few people who come from the clinical side, but then we also get people who are in the administrative side. We get people from academia. We get people from rural communities, from community clinics. We get people from the military. So we have a really diverse group of attendees who come every year. I tell people, we have people from like the pre-medical students all the way up to people who've retired from medicine. We have the C-suite all the way down to like residents and fellows. So it's really an amazing opportunity to network and connect with people from across the healthcare space, which is really unique because a lot of conferences don't really provide that level of opportunity. And for those, especially who are junior, it can help you create networks to help you advance your career. And for those who are more senior, it can help you find networks to figure out what should I do next or how can I mentor the next generation, or I'm already in the C-suite, what do I do when I go to my next step? I love all of that. Now, you touched on something a minute ago, just around like gaslighting versus imposter syndrome. Do you do you know how to tell the difference? And can you share that with our listeners? So I'm not going to give away the breakout session, okay. but it's it's really hard. You know, we talk about gaslighting where people use these tactics of kind of blaming the victim or there's something called DARVO, which basically stands for deny, attack, and then reverse the blame so that the victim's now getting blamed. And that really is hard sometimes when you're in the moment because a lot of very ambitious women, especially, suffer from imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome, and they feel like they're not good enough. And now all of a sudden someone is saying you're not good enough, or they're saying, of course, you wouldn't get that award or leadership opportunity because you're not here until 7 p.m., even though you're working from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. after your kids go to sleep. So it's really often hard to sometimes determine 
if you're being gaslighted or if you're having actual imposter syndrome or if you've actually done something wrong. So what I tell people, it's hard to step outside your own body and figure out what you're dealing with. So the best way I have found to deal with it is I ask an objective party. So I ask somebody who's not me. It could be a friend, it could be a colleague. And I will say, this is what happened. Am I overreacting? Should I be upset? Should I not be upset? Do I need to change something? And that has been really helpful for me because until recently, I would blame myself. Hands down, if somebody said something, it was my fault. I definitely did something wrong. I'm obviously the problem. What do I need to do to fix it? It's only after I started talking to other people and kind of reflecting with other people and using them as a resource that I began to realize sometimes when I was being attacked, it wasn't because I had done something wrong. It's because the other person was gaslighting me and then which fed into my imposter phenomenon, which then fed into me feeling like I wasn't good enough even more. And it's just this endless cycle. Do you think that people are aware and conscious of them being gaslighters? Like, is that like they're not going through that acronym of like, am I making sure that that person, you know what I mean? Like, is it that conscious or is it something that behavior that people just are totally unconscious and it's learned and they're rewarded for it somehow? We see it outside of healthcare as well. But the sad thing is the way the healthcare system has been set up, it's such a hierarchical structure and the culture of healthcare can be really toxic. If you think about it, the healthcare system was created before women were in the workforce. And so it wasn't really created with women in mind. And then on top of that, we have this hierarchy where when you're a student, you're being told you're wrong all the time. You're sometimes abused or bullied and you're expected to just take it. Same thing happens when you're a trainee and that culture continues on. So until we start really intentionally looking at how the culture is, I don't think we're ever going to see any change. People who gaslight and people who are bullies, a lot of times they, they just think this is just the way it is. I've had people who have literally in front of me bullied someone else. And I've said, hey, you know, that wasn't really the best way to talk to the person. Why don't we constructively figure out a better solution. And they're like, no, this is how it is. Get used to it. This is how it is. Get used to it because nothing's going to change. And that's not okay. The fact that it's been like this is not okay. So I think there's some people who probably know what they're doing. There's some people who probably know that they're getting away with what they're getting away with because they're applying those behaviors, even though they don't know what it's called. But I would say at the end of the day, it's really a culture issue and we need to look deep into healthcare and how we can change that culture of, of a toxic environment that, that exists in many places. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's been showing up for me a lot is the many ways in which we are failing women. And it is, you know, not just in the healthcare space, but it also has to do with women's health and, you know, understanding our bodies and, you know, being shamed around just basically like having anatomy or functioning bodies. And I know that you're actively involved in trying to counter that, right? And like supporting women as much as possible. And I feel like now, and maybe it's cliche to say now more than ever, we really need to show up for each other. But I, I mean it, like the community care and the way in which we need to support other women has, as far as I'm concerned, never been more important. Can you kind of speak to what you're doing in women in, in medicine to actually support women in all of these ways. I mean, you're speaking to it already, but there's 
we can talk for ages about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're totally spot on. And the sad thing is a lot of the people who are making the policies and the decisions on women's health are not clinicians or they're clinicians using bad information and bad data or they're using fallbacks like religion or personal beliefs to impact the delivery of medical care. And again, it goes back to the fact that women were not included in clinical trials until it wasn't until the 1990s that the NIH made it a requirement that women get included in clinical trials. So forget women's health. The healthcare in general right now is so broken. And the way we deliver healthcare to our women patients are, it's just, it's based on, in many cases, data that's only based on men. And so when we talk about how can we support women through this, I mean, there's there's a countless number of ways that, that we are doing it as an organization and that I think we can do even more. So there's advocacy efforts talking about, you know, policy change. We have a lot of people who are involved in women in medicine who've been going to the Capitol, who've been talking about these things to policymakers, explaining that the changes that are happening in women's health care right now are, it's dangerous. And it's not just impacting women, it's also impacting men. So when you think about these types of things, things like reproductive health, it's not, it doesn't take just one person to get pregnant. There's a lot of different ways you can get pregnant, but in the majority of cases in this day and age, there's usually two people involved. And so if somebody gets pregnant and if their partner and them are not ready to have a baby, then you're impacting two people's lives and eventually potentially even a third person's life if this baby is brought into the world. So I think that we miss the boat a lot when we talk about this and just how it's impacting women, because it's not just impacting women, it's impacting men, it's impacting non-binary individuals, anybody with a uterus it's impacting. And so the fact that we are at a point where we have basically criminalized being a woman criminalized uh -huh. having a period. We've made it dirty to talk about things like tampons. We can't report sexual abuse because usually the woman is the one who gets penalized and the man usually fails up and gets some sort of promotion to a different institution. And the woman is usually, you know, shamed for these issues. I think we're really doing a disservice to our society and our healthcare system as a whole. And at the end of the day, we're damaging women's health and we're damaging our communities. I couldn't agree more. However, I think that the people that a lot of times pulling the strings or making the decisions don't care. Like we can say that again and again and again, and it's not landing. And I'm thinking about how can we reframe or consider like speak the language that they actually care about. And if it is dollars and cents, can we talk about how undervalued or under there's so much money to be made in supporting women to get the healthcare and all of these other things that they need. Like, does that ever land? Does that land with you at all? 1000%. I mean, there's all these memes out there on social media about, you know, how politicians will have a woman force a woman to give birth. So they're, you know, force a birth. And then they're not going to provide any parental leave if the person has a job and then they lose their job. Now, all of a sudden they, they can't, they don't have an income. They can't pay for this person that they brought into the world. So it damages our economy by not providing parental leave, by not providing lactation services, by not providing childcare, by not providing ways. If you're going to force somebody to bring a child into the world, then you also need to be responsible for this child when they come into the world. It's it's not it doesn't make sense economically for us to say you must give birth 
but then you're on your own and it just damages our economy because now we have people who have to take time off work, but they're not supported. They lose their job. Now they're potentially going into the welfare system. I mean, there's so many different ways that financially it makes sense to support women and support women's health. It's the same concept in healthcare when we talk about preventative health. If Uh we put more money into preventative health, we would save billions and billions of healthcare dollars. If we talked about safe sex, we talk about, you know, condom use, we talk about uh, oral contraceptives. If we talk about those things as preventative measures, there's billions of dollars to be saved. I mean, we see that with colonoscopies, right? We prevent cancers by diagnosing them by doing a colonoscopy. So I think that there is a huge piece of the puzzle missing. And I always, I wrote an op-ed actually a couple of years ago called the oral contraceptives PR problem, where it was basically, we talk about birth control pills as if they're only for birth control. People are trying to criminalize birth control pills, but people use them for acne. They use them for their mood. They use them for PCOS. So there's medical reasons outside of contraception that people use oral contraceptives. And so we have to reframe frame these conversations where instead of penalizing the women or making the women out to be you know, bad actors, we need to be talking about how we could be saving our healthcare system and our economy billions of dollars, really billions of dollars by focusing on prevention and then by supporting women through women's health. Now, I'm somebody who cares a lot about and have been following value-based care, the transition to value-based care as a doctor. What has that been like for you for the last 10 years? Do you see changes as far as more action towards preventive care or like it's one thing to talk about the policy and how things should be. It's a whole different thing to experience it and live it. Can you speak to that at all? I feel like value-based care is a great way to move forward. And I think it's done really great in the organizations that are actually providing that type of care. I don't think it has become the norm in healthcare. Uh And Uh I don't think it's going to make a big enough impact until that type of care does become the norm. And at the end of the day, it goes back to the point you made. You have to show that it saves dollars. And when you show it saved dollars, then more people are going to be willing to do it. But one thing that I always say about healthcare is healthcare is usually, it feels like decades behind the rest of the world when it comes to innovation and change, which is interesting because when it comes to medical advancements and medical technology, we are miles ahead. But the problem is when it comes to everything outside of that, you know, outside of drug development and drug discovery and AI and technology, when it comes to the actual way the system is set up, we are still. 50 years behind where we should be. And instead of looking at how we can fix these systems by looking at things like value-based care and how they can improve the health of our communities, we're so stuck in what was working for healthcare 50 to 100 years ago that the change has not happened in academic institutions and in large institutions. We're now seeing big institutions buying other big institutions, and it's just perpetuating the problem. We're seeing more physicians who are hospital employed as opposed to in private practice and and being dictated to by the bottom line as opposed to what's best for patient care. And I think we're seeing a lot of physicians burn out and leave healthcare because they feel like, one, their work isn't valued. Two, they have to go through 6,000 steps to just provide basic care. And three, they're not being rewarded for things like value-based care and preventative care. They're being rewarded for how many patients can they squeeze in to, you know, 10-minute appointments in a day. And so we're really, we're really focused 
focused on the wrong things, I think, when it comes to compensation and healthcare. And that's why it really is going to come down to reevaluating the entire system and figuring out how can we start compensating physicians for the work that is so undervalued, but needs to be compensated for. And that goes ties back into women in medicine, where we have so many studies that show women in medicine are more likely to do citizenship tasks, more likely to be voluntold to be on committees or do DE&I work or, or do work that is important for mental health. But none of that is compensated. None of that goes towards promotion. None of that goes towards valuing the care that we're providing. And at the end of the day, when it comes to advancing women in leadership, advancing women's healthcare, all the things that we're talking about, if you're not compensating the healthcare workers for doing that really important work, eventually you're not going to have people to do that work. It's a shift between being proactive and reactive. And it's a lot more expensive to be reactive than it is to be proactive. But by the same token, it's hard to measure if you've prevented costs or prevented something terrible from happening. happening. How do you say, well, I saved you you know, however many millions of dollars because it, uh, you know, the world got saved instead of got destroyed. Exactly. Well, that's the whole problem with preventative care is that we know it works. We know it decreases healthcare dollars. We know that it improves health, but it's not the same as saying, oh, you had a heart attack. I put a cath in and now, you know, now you can go live your life. But if we had prevented that heart attack, how much of that money could have been saved by preventing the catheterization, by preventing the hospitalization? It's so backwards the way we think about reimbursement in this country and the way we think about how we're valuing healthcare. I personally would, I mean, we've seen it with the pandemic. I personally would much rather not get, you know, COVID, for example, than get COVID and be admitted to the hospital. But right. when we talk about preventing things like, you know, standard things, like at the, there's been all this debate over the pandemic of wearing masks or getting vaccinated or things that are preventative, everyone is up in arms about trying to prevent getting it. And now people are actually saying, well, I'm going to get it anyway, so I might as well just get it over with, not realizing you can get it multiple times. So it's that it's the way we think about healthcare and the way we think about our own health, where we need to start be thinking more about prevention as opposed to being reactive when we get sick or when we get diagnosed with something. I mean, one thing I keep thinking about too on a system level, it's like as the years pass, the problems just get more complicated. So our solutions to them have to be more complex too. It's it's like the opposite of compound interest, or, you know, like with thinking of consequences that they just, they pile up and it's exponential. And it's like, I, how are we going to do this? And maybe women in medicine is the answer. I <laughs> so, certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so if people want to go to the event, when is it? How can they sign up? How can they get involved? And also how can they get in touch with you or follow your work? Absolutely. So the summit has a website, womeninmedicinesummit.org. The conference is September 22nd and 23rd at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. We have early bird pricing open right now. So highly recommend you um, register now and we are likely going to sell out, but we will have in-person and virtual options. So if you miss your chance for in-person, you can definitely sign up virtually. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on multiple different social media platforms. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook and at all of them, it's very simple. I'm at Shika Jane MD. So you can find me any of those places and also on LinkedIn. And then the Women in Medicine Summit has its own social media handles. We're on Twitter, 
Facebook and Instagram as well, and LinkedIn. And it's either at WIM Summit or at Women in Medicine Summit. Wonderful. I will include all of that in the show notes. Thank you for your time today. And I can't wait to see you in person at the summit. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you in September. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.